Well, good morning, Branch Church. Everyone here, all of our church family online, a blessing to be with you this morning as we continue our worship of God. So three men stand before a judge. The judge looks at the first man and he says, what crime did you commit? He says, well, he says, I threw peanuts into the elephant pen at the zoo. And the judge is confused. I, I don't see what the problem with that is. Okay, next guy. Second guy, what crime did you commit? He says, well, judge, I threw peanuts into the elephant pen at the zoo. The judge's confusion is now building. I don't understand what you're doing in front of me. Why are you here? That doesn't seem to be such a big deal. Okay, third guy, what crime did you commit? He says, well, sir, my name is Peanuts. <laughs> if you had to choose the three worst states to live in, do not answer out loud. If you had to choose the three worst states to live in, what states would you choose? At least one author has written the following. The three worst states to live in are the state of despair, the state of poverty, and the state of confusion. Confusion is one you probably wouldn't think of, but I think when you do, we'd all agree that's a terrible place to live. Full of anxiety and worry, you're unsettled, you lack peace, nobody wants to live in a state of confusion. Have you ever been confused by religion? One religion says this, another religion says that. One leader says this, another leader says that. And you're like, I'm not sure who to trust. I'm not sure who to follow. I don't know who to give my cares to so I can be at ease amidst all this confusion. This morning, we're gonna see a wonderful story where Jesus is going to meet a Samaritan woman. And as he breaks social barriers, we are gonna see that Jesus brings clarity to all religion. And we're going to see two ways in which he does this. One with the gift of God, which we will describe what that is. And secondly, with the worship of God, so we can be confident how that actually and truly works. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, parentheses, side note, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but it was his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again to Galilee. So Jesus heard that the Pharisees heard, are you following me? Jesus heard that the Pharisees heard that he's getting all these disciples and they're getting baptized and following him. So Jesus makes a decision. I'm going to leave southern Israel, and I'm going to head north towards Galilee. <clears throat> Likely, I think, to miss out on any kind of pre-conflict that he doesn't need to have with the Pharisees. His hour has not yet come. And probably so that him and John and all that, it doesn't turn into any kind of a mess down there. So Jesus, knowing the hour has not come, he's going to leave, and he's going to head north to Galilee. Verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, he actually could have taken a different route. He could have jumped over the Jordan River. He could have gone north along the Gentile territory, jumped back over the Jordan River, and ended in Galilee. So there were actually more than one geographical routes to take. But this was the most straight and the easiest access road to take. Some think that, well, maybe it wasn't geographically he had to go. Maybe this was God's will. It was a divine he had to go. I don't think you could deny that. 
But I, I tend to think this is more of a geographical, he had to go, this is the way he needed to go. It's the shortest, most direct route. Now, verse four, this is a dun, dun, dun type movie moment. Jesus had to dun, 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 go through Samaria. Why is this such a big deal? Because the Jews and the Samaritans were not friends. Actually, it was so bad that they were enemies. And this is a long history. Let me tell you about it. So we'll go all the way back to Solomon. Solomon's king over Israel. This is all of Israel. Do you see it? All of Israel. Solomon sins. Israel gets split in half. 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. So we kind of have this civil war thing going on with Israel now. And we follow this through the rest of Kings and Chronicles and so forth. The north is going to be a lot more wicked, a lot more often, and they're going to get judged a lot sooner. In 722 BC, God is going to take the instrument of Assyria, bring them in, judge his people, and boot most of them out. Now, here's what Assyria does. They don't want the land to go to waste and not have people to work the land, and so they bring foreigners in to start to now live in the land and intermarry with the Jewish people up there. So now you have people who are half Jewish and half something else. How did the South feel about that? You're a bunch of racial half-breeds. We don't like you. Remember, nationality, Jewish nationality, ethnicity is highly tied to salvation and being saved. So South, they don't do much better. They just take a little longer to get there. They're wicked too. God brings Babylon in and Babylon is going to judge them, take them into exile. They come back into the land. Samaria is like, hey, you guys want some help? No, you bunch of political rebels, racial half-breeds. You don't use the same Bible that we use. Samaria, they only used the first five books of the Bible. They didn't use the writings and the prophets. So they used Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but not Joshua, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And so there's a huge divide there. Fine, fine, we won't help. We'll go build our own temple on our own mountain and have our own place of worship. And so they're gonna build it at a place called Mount Jerusalem. It gets better. I mean, no, it gets worse. And this carries on. And then in about 128 BC, the king of the Jews, I, I, I think it's pronounced John Hyrcanus, he comes in and sacks their temple, destroys it. About 100 years later, they come down, throw a bunch of dead, dead men's bones in their temple, which is bad because you're not allowed to touch a dead body in Israel. That would make you render you unclean. And before God, it's not a good thing. So, and, and it continues after Jesus's time. But anyway, Jesus, verse four, he had to go through Samaria. He's headed into a hostile environment where at the very least, they're not going to like him. At the very most, it could be violence in which he is going to encounter. Isn't that great from one verse? <laughs> verse five. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sukkar, modern day Askar. This is near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. So we're going all the way back now to Genesis, the end of it. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, he sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus has traveled now about 40 miles on Roman roads. To give you some perspective, that would be like going downtown and then walking up the 15 freeway all the way to Escondido and then going another eight miles past Escondido. So Jesus is tired. I'd be tired too. I think we'd all agree. He arrives at Jacob's well. It's the sixth hour. You count the hours from 6 a.m. Therefore, it's 12 noon. It's high noon. It's probably hot. And he's probably very thirsty. He arrives at Jacob's well. 
This was a significant well, seven feet in diameter. It goes about 106 feet down. To this day, I have heard that Jacob's well still is running. There is still a fresh spring in which it's connected to. That's amazing. Jesus sits by this well. Verse seven, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, uh, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? The whole scene is strange. So at least four strange things that are going on here. One, she comes at a strange time. Women didn't usually draw water right in the middle of the day. You could probably guess why. It's hot. You come in the morning, you come in the evening, it's hot. Second strange thing is she comes by herself. Women didn't usually do stuff like that. Usually you come in groups. Therefore, there's a good chance that she has some kind of shame or social stigma attached to her, which is why she's by herself. Thirdly, it's strange that Jesus, a man, initiates public conversation with her, a woman, that really didn't happen in this time in this way. Fourth strange thing, he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, we're not supposed to be friends. So in the middle of all this weirdness, watch Jesus now. Just like he did in Cana of Galilee, he's going to use a physical thing or reality and he's going to bring in a spiritual truth and priority in order to help her understand salvation. Jesus answered and he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? It's hard not to laugh if you know the prologue here. <laughs> greater than Jacob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Oh, yeah. And, and as well as his sons and livestock, he fed a lot of people with this water. Are you better than that? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of living, a fountain of water springing, bursting up into everlasting life. Jesus uses this opportunity to talk about living water. What is he talking about? John is so much fun to study because it has so much Old Testament reference, citation and illusion behind it. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. Jeremiah says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. What is God called here? The fountain of living waters and hew themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Go to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. 
O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord. Look what he's called again, the fountain of living waters. I can't help but think most Christians, probably even myself, I've read through the Bible and I don't remember this. And I see that God is called the fountain of living waters. This is a metaphor that speaks of life. God is the source of life, of continual, ongoing, fresh and renewed, everlasting life. Go with me now to Isaiah 44, verse three. Go back one book. Isaiah 44, verse three. This one's come up a few times, or at least it came up with Nicodemus. It says this, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. Water on the thirsty, floods on the dry ground. Look what it's connected to next. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. God is the source of living waters. The Holy Spirit is the agent of those living waters. And when he is poured out, there is a refreshing that comes and there is a life that dawns and that is actually given. One more I want to show you. Go to Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. In this hymn of praise, Isaiah 12, verse 3. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. Can you see how the Old Testament is rich with this idea of living waters? So we come back to Jesus and he speaks of this. What is he saying? He is speaking of the God who is the source of life, who will pour out his spirit, who will bring a renewed and everlasting life. He will come and renew your insides. And when he does this, it will well, it will burst, it will spring, it will keep going up until you have eternal life and that life will last forever. Jesus brings clarity to all religion by showing he is the one who renews someone and actually gives them life. And the life comes from God, the fountain of living waters, and is poured out through the Holy Spirit, who is the agent who makes that a reality in people. Nobody else can do that. What a wonderful, yeah, done, 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 let's go. <laughs> what a wonderful clarity that Jesus brings to this woman, and not just to her, but to all of humanity. You will drink water, you will thirst again. Can I get a witness? But if you drink of the gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit, God will give you life and you will never thirst, die again as God gives you eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's struggling here. She's still thinking naturally. She's missing the supernatural truth and metaphor behind what he's saying. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. It's just so funny. Each of them uses the opportunity and like guides the conversation this way and then like back this way. And then Jesus now is gonna point her to her sin. And by understanding her sin, she's gonna have a better understanding of what the fountain of living waters is and why she needs it. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now, it's not your husband. In that you have spoke truly. What does Jesus demonstrate? Supernatural knowledge. How could he have known this? 
The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Okay, I get it. You're a little more advanced than most people. You got some kind of prophet thing going on. She now bounces the conversation this way. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So she's kind of confused now. We worship on Mount Jerusalem. You guys worship in Jerusalem. What do we do? Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. He's not going to get into this argument because it's going to be mute. Because Jesus' coming is going to change all of this. Now, how did she get to the place? How did Samaritans get to the place where they thought Mount Jerusalem was the place to worship? Well, if you look quickly at Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, God says this. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all the tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. God made it very clear as they're going into the promised land. He will choose a tribe. He will put his name, his immediate presence there. That's where they are to go and worship. But here's the problem. Samaritans, they only had the first five books. So they couldn't look beyond that to find out what God actually does with Joshua and with David and so forth. So they had to look here in these first five books. And they settled on Mount Gerizim. A few reasons. One, it overlooks Shechem. Shechem is the place where Abraham built the first altar and going into the promised land. Mount Gerizim, if you look at Deuteronomy 27, is also highly significant. These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. When you have crossed the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand across, this is across from Mount Gerizim on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So half the tribes will stand on Mount Gerizim, the other half on Mount Ebal. They shout the blessings of the covenant. They shout the cursings. Everybody's very clear on what the stipulations are. So they settled on Mount Gerizim. Here's what Jesus says now in John 4, 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. He kindly tells her she's wrong and where she should actually be looking. She, and he points to the Jewish people. Why does he do this? Well, God has revealed himself specifically to the Jewish people. Generally, he's revealed himself to the world through creation, but specifically he has chosen Israel, and now Israel becomes an agent of that salvation, of that revelation. And through there, she could see where the truth is really supposed to happen. Jesus says this, but the hour is coming and now is. The hour is his death, it's his resurrection, it's his exaltation, it is the work of Christ and we'll see it again and again. The hour is coming. In fact, it's already here because it's already started with his presence. He's already inaugurated these truths. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Jesus's presence and particularly his salvation acts on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, when he exalts to the right hand of the father, all of this is contributing to changing worship. Worship at this point, God has designated a place where people are to come. That is going to be erased. God is now looking for people who will worship in spirit and truth. It is important that we understand what that means so we get it right. What is what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? 
I think it means this. It means to worship in the Holy Spirit and in accordance with the truth of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's merely just a heart thing where you're supposed to worship inwardly wherever you're at. I think that was already supposed to be true, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think it's more specific to the giving of the Spirit, which Jesus just talked about, the living waters, and in accordance with his work. So God is seeking worship. And what type of worship is he seeking? Worship that is in accordance with the work of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which is going to come through Jesus. Does God accept all worship? He does not. God is very gracious with worship. He's also very strict and severe with worship. Gracious. How is he gracious? He's shown us exactly where it's supposed to happen. Not in a place, but through a person. The place is not more holy because we all gather and call it church. It's the person through whom we worship, and that can happen anywhere. On your bed, on a train. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book I was just about to get into. <laughs> on the water, under the water, in a, I don't know, but it can happen anywhere. Lost my train of thought now. <laughs> Green eggs and ham. God is very gracious with worship. He has told us how. He's told us who. Jesus brings clarity to worship. It's not a mystery. We can be absolutely certain if we are worshiping the true God or not because of the person, Jesus, whom we come through, not because of the place we go or the place we might attend. God is also very strict. He doesn't change this. He doesn't budge. He doesn't alter because there's no other mediator who can come between you and God and actually make you right in his presence before the Father. Nobody else can do that. Does God accept the worship of Muslims? Does he accept the worship of Buddhists? Does he accept the worship of Hindus? Does he accept the worship of Scientologists, atheists, agnostics? We know the answer. The answer is no, because they reject the one and only son of God and therefore God will not receive that worship because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. But God is so gracious. If you were to go to a store and you wanna buy something amazing and you, you've, been, you've been buying all the Monopoly games, and you've been putting all that money in your pocket and you're, I got a million bucks of Monopoly money and you come to the store or you go to a realtor, I'm gonna buy this house. What are they gonna say to you? They're gonna laugh at you. That's no good. It doesn't work that way. We won't accept that currency. You wanna buy it? You gotta go get some real money. But can you imagine if the realtor turned around and actually then changed that and gave them that money, gave them a million bucks? or gave him 10 million or 100 million. And this is what God does with us. He actually gives us, tells us what the currency is to worship him, and then gives us all the currency so we can actually do it through his son, Jesus Christ. God is so gracious in how he does it. Jesus brings clarity to religion, not just where life is found, but how to actually come to God, know him, and have a relationship with him, and give him worship in which he truly receives and is glad to receive. Verse 24, Jesus gives a reason why this is the way it is. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It has something to do with the character and the nature of God. What is God like? God is spirit. What does that mean? He's invisible. He's non-corporeal. He doesn't have a human body and bones like we do. He's also everywhere, unlike flesh. 
therefore there needs to be worship that is in accordance with that. So we must worship in the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, and in accordance with the truth that is Jesus Christ. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He helps clarify this for his Greek readers, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She's still confused. You know, I, I hear all your religious talk, hear what you're saying. I'm just going to take my confusion and I'm going to set it over here. And when the Messiah comes, he'll make sense of it. My daughters were playing with my wife's jewelry this week. And it was fun until it all got tangled. I couldn't get it out. I, like, I think we're going to have to throw this away. It was so tangled. It was so bad. This woman's kind of like that. It's just so tangled up. Messiah will come and he'll fix that. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He tells her flat out, I am the Messiah. He wasn't even saying this to the Jewish people in Israel. They weren't ready. They would have tried to make him king, but he tells this Samaritan woman. This is amazing. The story upon which the Samaritan woman is behind is the Nicodemus story. You have two very different people in which Jesus is talking to. Nicodemus, ruler of the Pharisees, respected, middle class, man of the people, smart, studied, all these things. And then you have the Samaritan woman. She doesn't know God. She doesn't have the full scriptures. She's living a sinful lifestyle. She's probably an outcast. I don't know how she's doing on the friendship level. And yet Jesus comes to both of these people and talks to them. Praise God that our God breaks social barriers and social boundaries. May God help us all to learn from that. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled. They're astonished. What is going on? They recognize the strangeness that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot. I can't help but just on a personal level, like that seems like a big deal. How many water pots do you have? You're probably gonna need that, but it didn't matter anymore. There was something more important that was going on. She left the water pot, went her way into the city, and she said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and they came to him. Jesus' supernatural knowledge moves her to forget her shame, to rise above it and to go tell the men of the city, guys, I think we found him, come and see. When Jesus' truth, his supernatural reality hits home, I think it rises us above the restraints that we feel and put on ourselves. You know, those restraints of fear, the restraints of anxiety, the strengths of self, the knowledge of Jesus is so much greater where you're like, I don't even care about that. I don't even care about what you think or my shame because I think I found him. You guys got to come see, this is amazing. And you know what's incredible? They actually come. In the meantime, so she took off. The disciples urged him to eat. Rabbi, eat. That's what they went. They went to get food. And, um, but he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. If Jesus said that to you, you'd probably come to the same conclusion. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Did someone else bring him a burrito? Like, I didn't see it. Did you see it? Did you look in the trash can? Do you? Jesus said to them, and here's what he does again uses the physical opportunity to bring in a spiritual reality. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food, my satisfaction and filling, my sustenance is what? It's not food, 
It is doing the will of God. This is an incredible statement. And I agree. And I felt the same thing in my life. Better than the best, juiciest hamburger you could ever get. Better than your favorite burrito spot. Better than your grandma's favorite awesome dessert that no one knows the secret recipe to. It is doing the will of God that is deeply satisfying and nothing hits like it. I can't help but picture in my own little finite mind, your stomach only goes so far, obviously, and food hits it and it's good, but you gotta do it again. Something about doing the will of God hits deeper, deeper than the stomach goes, deeper than we can realize. And you walk away like, I am so satisfied and filled. Nothing touches it like this. I have felt this in my life with sharing the gospel and I've felt it and I've seen it partially and seeing you guys and God bearing fruit in you. The beauty of, a, of an innocent eye that, I want to know more Jesus. How do I walk with him? It's like, that's like the greatest thing in the world. This is so awesome. Better than a trip at Disneyland. If I can do this, and I hope I don't embarrass you, we had a brother stand up here yesterday at the men's breakfast. And I've known him for like three years now. He came over to the church during COVID and we've been able to grow and be great brothers. And he stood up here and just gave so much of his heart and his self to bless the men. And I'm sitting in the front row like, praise God, this is so great. This is so wonderful. Like, that's what you want to see. And it was God doing the work in this brother. There is nothing deeply satisfying like this. And Jesus confirms this. He continues. He says, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Yeah, I think we say, we say that. Do we say that? <laughs> Farmers do. Don't you guys look at the physical harvest and you say four months and food's coming. Yeah, they would say that. <laughs> he says, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they're already white for harvest. He says the physical harvest basically has not come, but you know what has come? The spiritual harvest. Look at the fields, guys. You see all that white coming? Those are all the Samaritan men. And I don't know if women too, but men are coming over right now and they're getting ready to receive eternal life. God has been working for thousands of years at this point in scripture to bring in his salvation. He's been sowing seeds of promise, seeds of hope. There's gonna be a kingdom. There's gonna be a king. There's gonna be forgiveness. There's gonna be a new heavens and a new earth. He's been telling them this all throughout the scriptures. And finally, the seeds have sprouted and we see the first bit of deliverance that's gonna happen. And it's gonna happen with these half-breeds, these political rebels, these people who don't even fully have the scriptures Look how great our God is to meet people and still save them despite their ignorance and despite how God's people at that time were treating them. Verse 36, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. In this, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. When it comes to salvation, God has given his people different roles. Some sow, some get to reap. Some get to plant seeds of truth. Some get to see people actually believe those seeds of truth. But whatever which one you are, or if you get to do both, we rejoice together in what? That God is doing his work. Are you sowing truth in someone's life? and you'll never get to see it, praise God that God will work and that someone else is gonna get to come and, and, and reap the benefits of that. Are you reaping fruit and getting to see people believe and do great things? Praise God for those who have come before and who have sowed seed. 
whatever role you get to play, we thank God for it. And to the best of your ability, you worship and give him the glory because it's not about us. It's about God and his work. The disciples are in such a unique time, this transition part where they get to reap what these prophets have died for. John the Baptist has gone in the wilderness and shared for. They get to finally see it. They get off easy. Well, sort of, right? They actually get to kind of do both. They're going to go out in the power of the spirit and plant whole new seeds in a way that we've got to benefit from today. Many of the, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Don't underestimate the power of the seed of a testimony. This woman did not fully understand Jesus. She did not have fully the scriptures. She was not accepted in her society. And yet she goes out and all she says is, this guy told me, I think he's the Messiah. He's got supernatural knowledge. That's amazing. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to know perfectly all the doctrines of scripture to share what you do know about Jesus. We want to mature in those things. We want to grow in those things. But don't let what you don't know stop you from sharing what you do know. You know way more than you think. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. That's what we want. We want to lead them to eventually believe on his word. That's why I'm such a firm believer of getting God's word in front of other people. Those gospels in John in the back, read it for yourself. My testimony is great to point you, and you can, but I want you to believe because he said it, because you actually know the word of God. And their conclusion is incredible. Nicodemus, I'm not sure who this guy is, rabbi teacher. And now we have Samaritans coming in. And what do they say? This guy's the savior of the world. He's the savior of the United States. He's the savior of Canada. He's the savior of Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Chad, Nigeria. He's the savior of Mongolia, Japan. He's the savior of the Arctic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian. Every square inch of this earth, there is one savior. What is his name? Jesus Christ, our Lord. He brings clarity to all religion, telling us what the gift of God really is. It's life by his spirit, one that you can't make yourself do. He spoke to Nicodemus, gotta be born again of the spirit. He speaks to the woman, living waters that ongoing picture of the Spirit's work in making you actually survive and live. However, it's described, the gift of God is the Spirit and we all need the Holy Spirit because we're broken and we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But when you come through Jesus, he makes that renewed life reality and it wells up inside of you and it keeps going forever, even into eternal life. It's a fountain that never dies. Jesus brings clarity to that. He brings clarity to the true worship of God. You can rest assured that you worship the true God and he receives your worship because Jesus takes you by the arm and brings you in the presence of the Father and dresses you in his robes of righteousness. Amen.